does traditional grading meet the purpose that most people say is the in letter grade? Is this actually showing some sort of achievement that a student has made towards progressing towards the goals of that class? And I would say even if it does, which I don't grant that it does, I as an instructor couldn't tell you what achievement it was. Like if a student came back and said, hey, I got to be in your class, what did I learn? I had no record. I could tell you, you got a 90% on the first exam and 80% on the second exam and 85% on the final. But if you asked me, did this calculus student know how to do sequences and series? I have no clue. Welcome to the Grading Podcast, where we'll take a critical lens to the methods of assessing students' learning, from traditional grading to alternative methods of grading. We'll look at how grades impact our classrooms and our students' success. I'm Robert Bosley, a high school math teacher, instructional coach, intervention specialist, and instructional designer in the Los Angeles Unified School District and with Cal State LA. And I'm Sharona Krinsky, a math instructor at Cal State Los Angeles, faculty coach, and instructional designer. Whether you work in higher ed or K-12, whatever your discipline is, whether you are a teacher, a coach, or an administrator, this podcast is for you. Each week, you will get the practical, detailed information you need to be able to actually implement effective grading practices in your class and at your institution. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Grading Podcast. I'm Sharona Krinsky, and I'm sitting here in the co-host seat, and with me today, Robert Bosley. How's it going, Bos? It's going pretty good today. I I wanted to wish everyone a a happy thanksgiving as this should be airing the week of thanksgiving so hope everyone enjoys the the time off i know we all need it as educators how are you doing today i'm a little bit under the weather as you might be able to hear in my voice but we're going to power through that as we often do as educators i would agree happy thanksgiving to everyone listening and and to you bosley Because it is Thanksgiving, this is our first major holiday we've hit since launching the podcast. So we're going to do a little bit differently today. We're taking a little bit of a break from a full recording, and we are going to be replaying uh, part or all of our episode on what's wrong with traditional grading. We thought that was a good time to take stock of where we are, especially as we go into a new semester and revisit the issues that we're trying to avoid recreating as we look at redesigning our grading systems. But before we do that, we got, I'm so happy about this. We got a really thoughtful, engaged set of comments from a listener. And I wanted to give us a chance to respond to it and to thank this person. So I hope I'm going to get their name right. Robert Chidola from Vista Unified School District wrote in. And he says, let me start by saying that I'm really enjoying the podcast The information, analysis, and interviews on the podcast have been helpful in reaffirming that this has become, quote, the hill I will die on, unquote. You provide, on the whole, clear rationale for grading reform, and I appreciate having a venue for hearing about more people's experience with this in various contexts. Robert then goes on to give us some of his contacts, but I wanted to read a couple of specific paragraphs from this. What stood out most to me in this construct was when the articles, and he's specifically talking about us critiquing the critiques episode. So I apologize, Uh, make that clear. 
What stood out most to me in this construct was when the articles took a very black and white approach to grading reform being fraud, etc. It seemed to me that you also took a very black and white approach, maybe defensive in nature, in response. Multiple times you referred to grading architecture that still separates by percentage in constructing the entire grade, minimum grading, or getting rid of zeros, as hacks, while portraying your own approaches as the purer approach, going so far as to say the hacks are not actually alternative grading, though they may be called equitable grading practices. I give this example because I started to feel somewhat defensive myself about my approaches to grading when you said this. By creating this dichotomy, or maybe purity test, your criticism made me feel like a hack too. I know that wasn't the intent, but this gets to the bigger picture of the constructive feedback I want to offer. He goes on to ask us a series of questions, and then ultimately concludes towards the end with the following. I felt there was some mixed messaging, ultimately. The articles were making strong statements against alternative practicing practices, but you responded with equally strong statements, even while making appeals to have, quote, real discussions, unquote. I'm on your side with the big picture here, but if it's traditional versus alternative, and you're saying equitable isn't actually alternative, where are you placing some of us who definitely do agree with you, but aren't taking the same path or are able to take the same path? So Robert, first of all, thank you for writing in. And I know, Bosley, you had some responses that you wanted to start with. Yeah, well, first, I also wanted to thank Robert, this. It's really flattering to have someone that's listening to us that took the time to write this feedback. I mean, this is really well done. It it is a really detailed and it really is, even though he's giving us a little bit of critique of our critique of critiques. It was so flattering to get this. I really do want to thank you, Robert, for pointing this out and for just being a listener. And I don't know if he intended to do this, but I do believe from some of his examples in his email that he might have been talking more about me than you. So I definitely want to apologize if that's how it came out, that I I was somehow saying that you either have to go all the way to alternative or what you're doing isn't efficient. Yes, I was using the word hacks when I was describing some of the practices that you can do to make traditional grading more equitable, like not giving zeros for missing work, putting a floor at the score that you give, whether it's 50% or whatever, or doing the no late policies, any of those things, I did not mean that in a bad way. And let me be clear, this is where my grading reform started, not just in my practice, but in my trainings and trying to train others. I did not mean that in a negative. It's a way to make something work in a way that it's not intended to work. So I absolutely did not mean that in a negative way. I was not trying to criticize anyone that does that currently in their grading practice. In fact, traditional grading has so many issues. Anything that you are doing to try to make traditional grading more equitable is absolutely what you should be doing. Whatever it is you're doing, whatever it is you feel comfortable doing is exactly what you should be doing. And you should be absolutely patted on the back for trying something different. So for anyone that felt this the same way that Robert did, I really do apologize. I did not mean it to come off in a negative way. And I really do want to kind of reiterate 
what David Clark said back in one of our early interviews. He kind of closed out that episode with whatever it is you're comfortable with doing is what you should be doing. And it is the right thing for you to be doing. Like there is no one right way to do this. There is no, you have to go at least this far or you're not really doing it. Whatever it is you're comfortable with is what you should be doing. And I want to read one more line because I really hope I wasn't doing this, but this last line of one of his body paragraphs, my overall worry is in being a sort of grading justice, you're going to cut down allies in the process. First, I love the imagery. (laughs) I wish I could write that well. Uh, But yeah, if anyone does feel like you're an ally that I accidentally cut with my sort of grading justice, I deeply apologize. And like I said, whatever it is you're comfortable doing is what you should be doing. And I want to thank everyone who is doing anything to try to improve traditional grading. And I wanted to follow that with a couple of thoughts of my own. So thank you for that. I agree with 100% with everything you said. We were not trying to cut down anyone who's trying anything. I do want to emphasize one of the things that Robert brought up. It says that we're saying that equitable isn't actually alternative. And I do want to specify that for this podcast, our definition of alternative grading does include the four pillars. So minimum grading by itself does not meet that definition of alternative or late policies by themselves. These are still things you can do to improve the inequities in traditional grading. And we strongly encourage anyone who can do anything. There's so many contexts out there, like we said. There's no one right way to try to improve what's going on with traditional grading. We did feel that we needed to specify that alternative grading for us is based on the four pillars. And the minimum grading by itself does not actually address any of the four pillars. It just addresses the math. That's one of the big problems with traditional grading. So if all you can do is minimum grading to fix the math, then great, do that. That's fabulous. The issue that I'm having is that I don't disagree with some of the criticisms of minimum grading because students view it as getting credit for nothing. And so that I think is where I was trying to thread the needle is that yes, it is far more equitable to not destroy your students with mathematics with a heavily skewed fail rate. It is definitely more equitable. But for us, alternative grading is really about these four pillars. So if that didn't come across, we're just trying to get some definitions down so that we know what we're talking about yeah. and what but, we're agreeing but, on. But once again, if all you are comfortable with doing or all that you're able to do, there's definitely um, a lot of us in the education world that don't have the freedom within their grading policies to make some of the changes they they might want to make. But even if what you're doing isn't what we're calling alternative grading, if it's what you can do and it's what you're comfortable with doing, it's what you should be doing. And again, we're not saying that it's wrong. We're, We're just trying to do some definition and some 
clarity on terms. So when we talk about these, it's a little bit more clear, but please, if you are doing some of these minimum grading things, because that's all you're comfortable with, or that's all you're able to do, keep doing it, please. It's absolutely great that you are trying to do anything at all. So please do not take us saying that what you're doing is wrong in any way. And this is the grading podcast, not the alternative grading podcast. So if you have other ways that you've thought of that maybe we haven't mentioned to address some of these issues with traditional grading, please write in, please let us know. This framework of the four pillars, this is just one construct and it's a relatively new construct. So if someone has another construct, we'd love to hear it. Anything that can address some of these problems with traditional grading and the damage they're doing to our students, completely open to it. And we treasure everyone who's doing this. All right. With that being said, I think it's time we get back to the replay of our What's Wrong With Traditional Grading. Again, hope everyone has a great holiday and we'll see you again next week. And we will be back with new episodes after the Thanksgiving break. Take care, everyone. Tonight's episode, we're going to start really diving into why do we need a different grading system? What's wrong with the traditional grading system? But before we can do that, Sharona, can you kind of define what we mean when we say traditional grading, just so we're all on the same page? So what do we mean by traditional grading? Again, with the caveat that we understand that this is by no means universal. Lots of people are doing different things. By traditional grading, we mean some form of a points and percentages based grading system. The uh, things that go into the final grade are comprised of student work that is marked with points and some sort of a percentage is calculated in order to assign the final grade. Would you say that's a accurate? Well, and those points end up getting into an average, whether it's a some sort of straight average or some sort of weighted average, but an average or, or a total count comes in at some point to define the difference between A and a B, a B and a C, and so on. Exactly. And I would say that, again, for many of us, 90% or above or 93% or above has been an A and 80% to almost 90 is some sort of a B, et cetera, et cetera. And again, We've seen all kinds of variations. We recently discovered a school where they have a grade called an AB, and that's from typically 87 to 93%. And it has a GPA equivalent of a 3.5 in the GPA calculations. So even though that might not be normal, we're still that's still going to fall into our traditional grading system because it does still have percentages and points and based on averages. So regardless of if you're doing the, the really ultra traditional 10 point scale, 90 to 100 is an A, 80 to 89.9 is a B, or some other very variation of that, it's still traditional because we're still using points, we're still using percentages, we're still using averages. So for the um, purpose of this episode, when we're talking about traditional grading, that's what we're referring to, correct? Yeah. And that can be in any discipline. I mean, whether you're in math or engineering or English or a, a language class or even some art classes, there's, there den- tends to be some way of doing this. And we're including all things that go into that grade, whether they be syllabus assignments, homework assignments, exams, quizzes, essays, 
projects, anything you name it, anything that goes into that final grade calculation. And just kind of an interesting point, thinking back on my own experience as a student, I never had a class that wasn't this. I I did have a few classes that were graded on a curve, some of my higher level college classes, but that curve was still based on points and averages. It just, you set a bell curve to define the the final wrap up, but all of my classes that I ever experienced as a student was some form of this. So I would say that the exception for me that comes to mind were my arts classes. I was in marching band in high school. I have zero recollection of any points or percentages. Of course, this was pre-learning management systems days. So I don't know how my grade was calculated. I think that if you showed up and performed and did your stuff, you got an A. Similarly for my drama classes. So I'd say the one that broke that the most for me were my arts classes. All right, so then if this is so common and mathematically and with a computer so easy to calculate, what's the problem? Why are we here? Let me ask you this question, Boz. What does it mean to you, pre-you, pre-grading? We're going back to talk to Bosley from 2010. So Bosley from 2010, when you see that a student got a B in a previous course, what assumption did you make about that student? Well, and that's the interesting thing, because it depends on who it came from. I mean, I, okay. I'll, I'll be very honest without naming names. If I'm teaching, let's say, an Algebra two class in my high school, and I'm looking at a student that from teacher A has a B, and from teacher B has an A, those are two very different grades. That B might actually be a much higher, I might consider that student much better prepared and and much more ready for algebra two than the student that actually had the higher grade. That's interesting because that is a contextual difference for us because for me, I don't know my fellow faculty members well enough, most of them, to really know what the distinction might be. But that's also interesting because, let's back up, what is the purpose of these final multi-level grades supposed to be? We've asked this question to a lot of the faculty we've worked with. And typically, most people will say some form of a student who got a B. And notice that we're not saying a B student. That's a totally different thing. We don't like that labeling. So a student who received a B in a course, in theory, should know probably 80% or more of the material at what you might call a proficient level. They should be able to do 80 to 89% of the material at a level of proficiency that prepares them to take the next class because our classes are also acknowledging our discipline. Our classes are hierarchical, many of them. Yeah. Like you said, we've actually, in our trainings over the last several years, we've asked this question quite a bit. And I think the most standard kind of generic answer we get is that these grades are supposed to communicate some sort of achievement that the students have achieved towards reaching the goal of a class. Some amount of learning, in other words. Yeah, some amount of learning. So then what's the next question we usually ask? Does your grades do that? Or do the grades you see, do you... Well, usually we ask the first one. Okay. Does your grades reach that purpose? And almost uniformly, everyone says yes. My B means this student knows this much of material. What's interesting is the next question that you were just alluding to that we ask. So the next question we asked is, 
can you rely on the previous grade? So when you look at a whole set of students who got B's in the previous class, can you rely on them knowing 80% or more of the material from the previous class? And what do people say? And again, almost unanimously, okay, I'm going to edit that. Unanimously. And universally across the different disciplines we've asked that? No. Exactly. So we all think it, we all think our grades do exactly what they're supposed to do, but nobody else's do. Exactly. So that's an issue. Then we, in our trainings, we like to do this little exercise because we thought, well, maybe we're all just sort of being smug or maybe we're being unfair to our fellow instructors. So especially when we're working with math instructors, because we like our mathematical systems and our points and our percentages, we will give faculty a problem and we'll give them some sample student work and we'll say, hey, grade this problem out of 10 points. And we give the same problem, a couple different versions of student work. And on each version of student work, what's the range of scores that we typically get? Just out of a 10 point range, usually we get at least a seven point range. And there has been some times where we will have eight or nine point range. Right. So we'll get anywhere from two points to nine points on the same problem, same work. Same mistakes. On a, on a problem that's pretty straightforward mathematically. For most mathematicians, they'll understand the problem. And this kind of highlights one of the first big issues with traditional grading. In fact, if you ever read the paper by Dr. Thomas Guskey, which if you haven't, oh my gosh, you need to read and everything. And we will put he, the link in the show yes, notes. You need to read everything he puts out. But in his paper on the case against the percentage... He actually points this out and talks quite a bit about it because this isn't unique. This isn't unique to us. In fact, here's the part that I found the most disturbing when I kind of started this pathway myself. There are studies going back 110 years. 1913 was the first time a study was done on traditional grading to show and showcase this exact problem. It's been duplicated several times um, by the same researchers that did it back in 1913, other researchers that have done it and in the it was 2000s. Like the 1990s. And again, you and I have done a informal version of this with literally hundreds of different educators at this point, if not close to a thousand. And we continue to get the same results. So even when we say we expect 80% of the knowledge to be learned, and you take instructors within the same discipline with the same disciplinary knowledge, give them the same problem and give them the same student work, you're going to get this range. And you're going to get this range even if you spend time as a team coming up with what they call normed grading, different than grading to a norm, so it's not grading on a normal curve, but coming up with an agreement of how to grade you still get a wide variation of grading on an individual problem. And here's the first big issue with traditional grading. If it starts off with points and the exact same student is getting an eight in your class and a six in mine, that's a two letter grade difference right there. That's a 20% difference before we go to the grade difference, because that can be accommodated in the mathematics, but the point being, yes, eight out of 10 and six out of 10 are very different values mathematically. Then on top of that, so now we have individual problems, individual assignments being graded differently. 
now we're going to load on top of this a hundred degrees of precision in the form of percentages. So let's think about this for a second. A hundred percentage points where supposedly 100% is different than a 99%, which is different than a 98%, which is different than a 97%. And so on and, and so on. And then we're going to go to 97.5 and 97.4 because mathematically we can get infinitely precise on the mathematics. But we're trying to say that the quality of work a student does with a one percentage point difference is somehow different. And yet studies have shown that human beings have a hard time distinguishing anything more than about five levels of difference. And this, again, this is not us saying that this is actually research that's been done by multiple people, multiple times, and not just with educators. They've done this with all kinds of professionals, carpenters. They've taken people in whatever field of excellence they have, whatever profession they're in, and try to have them without precise tools to come up with all these different levels of separation. And yeah, e even in the most hands-on professions, about 13 was where they found. Like anything over 13, the accuracy just plummets. And, and for most of them, it's more like five. Yeah. So, so now we have a 100-point scale where we're supposedly doing 100 levels of accuracy. So we're supposed to be able to differentiate students at least 100 levels. And now we're going to take 60 of those 100 levels and call that failing. That's going to get into our, our second big issue with traditional grading is that most traditional grading, zero to 59, sometimes maybe a little lower, but somewhere in that range is failing. So anywhere from over half to almost two thirds of the scale is failing. And the next 10 points is marginally successful, but not considered successful enough to proceed, at least in higher education. So in higher education, most of the time, a prerequisite course has to be like a C or a C minus. And then on top of that, it varies from institution to institution now too. So that's a whole nother thing. Yeah. But so now we've got something that on its face looks like it's skewed towards failure. Well, it doesn't look, it is. I mean, when you've got a hundred points possible and anywhere from 55 to 65 of those hundred points would be considered failing, you've got a large left skew. Right. Now we're going to look at the mathematics because if there are, let's go back to our 10 point problem, right? The difference between eight out of 10 points and six out of 10 points is really 80 out of a hundred to 60 out of a hundred when yeah. you go to percentages. Yeah. It's 20 points different. That's a difference between a B and a D between right. a passing and most times D's are considered non-passing. Right. And so what I've definitely seen with most graders is They'd like to keep the points, quote unquote, reasonable. So they're doing things out of five points or 10 points or two points or four points. And then you take a point off or a half a point off or a quarter of a point off for some mistake, because you don't want to take point zero one three two seven points off like that's too much precision. And yet, if you're taking a quarter point off of a two point problem, that's 25 percent. Yeah. So you've taken a simple, quote unquote, arithmetic mistake or a spelling mistake or a grammar mistake, and you've knocked it from 100% down to 75% or 100% down to 50%. So 
the layers and layers and layers of the mathematics here, honestly, it drives me insane. Exactly. And this whole idea of 60 degrees of, of failure or something really like that, we don't see that anywhere else. Like, it, it's interesting. I, I was looking up some of the actual mathematics behind. Let's take a test both of you and I have had to take. The GRE. Mm-hmm. The graduate Record exam. records exam. If you got 50% on that test right, did you fail? No. Actually, if you got 50% of it right, you got half the test right. You did better than 60% of the people that's ever taken the test. Oh, wow. That's the actual statistics involved. Is that 50% failing? No, it's not anywhere near failing. Because again, you've outscored 60% of the people that have ever taken it. So this idea of 50, 60 degrees of failure, the only time we see it is here in the these letter grade um, computations. So there's issue number two. Now, another issue that's related to that. Before you started any of this, what happens when a student doesn't turn something in? Well, many instructors are going to give a student a zero. Of course, because they didn't turn it in. What which, else which are they going to Which makes sense. Do? There's no evidence of learning. So even in our systems, mm-hmm. they don't get any credit, so to speak. They don't get any evidence of learning. They haven't shown us anything. But what's the problem with that, with traditional grading? So the problem with that is the mathematics, again. Because... If you get, say, 0 out of 10, and your next assignment, you get 10 out of 10, and you add those together, you've got 10 out of 20. You're at 50%. So you had one no-show and one perfect for failing. Okay, but that seems reasonable. You get another one. You get another perfect. So now you have two perfects and a missing one. So now you're 20 out of 30. You're at 67%. You're still in a D range. You're still... Okay. We get three perfects in a row. So now you're 30 out of 40, you're 75%, you're a C. But you've had three perfect assignments and one nothing. Okay. How about a fourth one? Okay. So now we're 40 out of 50. We're at 90%. No. 40, we're 80%. 80%. Sorry, I can't we're, even do the math. We're a B minus. With four out of five perfect assignments, mathematically, we're at a B minus. How many more is it going to take to get back to an A? I think you have to get to 9 out of 10, don't you? Yeah. (laughs) That's 10 assignments. You get 9 perfects to make up for that one zero. That doesn't make sense. Well, and the zero was not that you got everything wrong. The zero was a complete and total lack of information. So the kid was sick. Or the student had a computer malfunction and a crash. Or life happened, or they just missed it. They just missed it. Or what if it comes at the end? What if you have six perfect assignments first, and then they miss one? On the same content, even. It doesn't matter if it came at the beginning, the middle, or the end. Mathematically, it's still 50 out of 60. Right. Well, that's problem number three then, right? Yeah, there's the problem number three. This unbelievable punishment for a single assignment. And again, another great article that we'll link in our notes, Case Against the Zero. 
is another one. No, this one's not by Thomas Guskey, even though it sounds very similar to right. his A Case Against the Percentage. But I think it was intentionally done that way because they both of these articles do play off of each other really well to show some of these issues that we're talking about and how in combination with them, this is a death sentence to a student's grade. Right. Now, I will be honest with you, though, Boz. I've heard of a lot of people say, well, you know what, let's just cut off the lowest anyone gets is a 50%. They get 50% of the points whether they do it or not. I personally, I'm a little uncomfortable with that. But not because I mind giving students points. It's because you've now clouded your grade book. Because what's the difference between a student who got it half correct and a student who didn't turn it in and has a 50? Like that 50 doesn't mean anything. So that you fixed potentially in theory some of the mathematics. Yeah, with the 60 But you clouded the communication. Exactly. So what's another option for that one? Well, even before we get to the options, let's continue with the issues. Because these are not the only issues. Right. There's still another really big issue at least that I have with traditional grading. Okay. And that is the actual use of the average. So from a statistical standpoint, what is the purpose of an average? So if I get this wrong, I think you're going to throw something at me since we both teach statistics. So the average is a measure of center. Exactly. It is a measure of center. It's one of our descriptive statistics that is describing the center of a set of data. I don't know about you. I don't care what my students are doing in the middle of a semester. My grade at the end, if it's supposed to show communication of the student's achievement towards a goal of my class, I don't want to know what they were doing in the middle. Like That does me no good. And what, one of our other good friends actually wrote a blog about this, when a number's not a number. Again, Robert Tavard. Yeah, you're going to hear his name a lot, y'all. Yes, you are. And he hopefully will be one of our early guests as well. Exactly. So we just highlighted like four really big issues with traditional grading. Well, and then I'm going to add another one. Oh, yeah. We've got a few more. We've we got a few add. more. But here's another one. Every single one of these grades, almost all the time, is dependent on a student turning in this material on time, however you define on time. So the biggest sort of unwritten or unknown rule that overlays all of this is being compliant with deadlines. Because I know very few instructors who aren't at least going to take a few points off for being late. Oh, we've got to teach our students, you know, responsibility. So we have to take... So so in a way, 90% of your grade is just, can they turn things in on time? So that leaves your content very, very low on the totem pole in terms of grades. Well, that kind of sucks. Yeah. And that if we're going back to what we are saying, the purpose of these multi-level grades, is it really showing the students understanding and growth towards an achievement of our class? Or is it showing how well they can turn things in on time? How well they can do compliance stuff? Now, there's another, before we get off the subject of the mathematics of the grades, there's another whole category, and that is the weighted averages, the different groups. Okay, so let's go in pretend land, and let's pretend all the other issues that we've just mentioned didn't exist. We all can look at the exact same assignment 
graded the exact same way. We all have an equal amount of degrees of failure and success that averages actually measured the end and not the middle. Which they don't. Yes. So we're living in, in we're you know, living a, in an imaginary land. Imaginary land. And all of these other problems don't exist. Okay. There's one more big one. And it's what you were just saying. Yeah. Waiting by groups of assignments. Which outside of maybe elementary and some middle school, at least in mathematics, I have never seen someone not do. Exactly. So what do we mean by these weighted categories? So you've got your homework. That's going to be maybe about 10%, 5%, 15%. You're going to have your participation grades, your quiz grades, your unit exams, your final exam, your midterms. Yeah. So it's however and however many of these categories. And when I did traditional grading, I had a, a strong emphasis on classroom participation. I tried to do collaborative learning and active learning. So I had a lot of points on my in-class um, category. Mm-hmm. Not as much on the homework, some on the test, but if you and I, same class, and you're reversing that, you're very much, I want to see it on the test. Mm-hmm. I want to see those end results. So my grades are based really heavily on these tests. Right. Is that really going to make that much of a difference? Well, when we've done the math, which we have done in several of our presentations, We get the same student from an F to an B just by changing the weighting system. And we're not talking drastic changes. We're not saying person A has 100% and participation and teacher B has, you know, 90% and test. No, switching homework from 10% to 25% or 10% to 20% even. Switching midterms from 30% to 40% down to 20%. we, We can really skew these grades very, very rapidly. Exactly. And I mean, again, like you said, we've done it with very minimal changes and things that we've actually seen from our other colleagues or even what we might have done. And it makes a difference between a B and a D. So couldn't we just fix that, though, by all agreeing on the same weights of percentages? What's wrong with that? I thought I was living in La La Land. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I actually do have a problem even with that. Let's go to double imaginary land and say that we can agree on all of this. Now you have a student who, and especially in college, you have a student working a lot of hours, taking a very heavy course load, but for whom a specific content area comes easy and it's really easy for them to show it on an exam, does not have time to do homework. That was me. That, that mm-hmm. You described me as a college student working close to full-time, at least in math classes. Didn't need to do a lot of the homework to be able to do it on the test. Not that I'm bragging, it's just how it was. Right. Then you have another student for whom timed exams are extremely stressful. So it's not like they do poorly, but they don't do quite as well. But they are excellent at presenting content in class. Like you have oral presentations and they're just top notch. It's clear they understand the material. Well, if we don't weight that as heavily. Yeah. Depending on whatever imaginary universal weighting system we went with, one of these two imaginary students is going to be very much benefited from it. And one is going to be very much harmed, even though they might have the exact same level of understanding of the material. Just one of them can do it on a test. One of them has to do it verbally, a presenting on the board. Yeah. And so the issue then becomes, if we claim that these grades are measuring learning, 
none of the stuff that we've discussed has anything to do with their learning. No. And now we step back out of imaginary land and put all of these things together. And it goes back to my original answer about when you ask me, when I look at a student's previous grades, what does it mean? Almost meant nothing to me. It meant more about looking at who gave it to them because that actually told me more because the grades, the letter grades didn't tell me anything. Didn't tell me anything about the student's learning or understanding. I, I love that. Uh, so Ken O'Connor, another person who's done a lot of writing in this area, has a, uh, a great problem he shows that we use a lot, the parachute package Parachute problem. package, yep. And there's three students, and we'll link a, an image in the show notes, but there's three students. One student starts off really well, able to pack a parachute, deteriorates through the whole semester. That's student A. Student B starts off very low, never packed a parachute before probably, gets better, 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 better. And student three is very inconsistent, up and down and up and down and up and down. Mathematically, all three of these students end up with a 70. But it's very clear there's only one student that you actually want packing a parachute that you're going to have to jump out of a plane with. Now, let's be clear. I will not jump out of a plane. <laughs> so there's, well, yeah, I'm assuming you're even more firm on the parachute packer. But yeah, but this problem is interesting because, again, and... Giving props where it's deserved. This is something that Ken O'Connor has done in some of his books. Presenting this, we've asked hundreds of teachers. Have we ever gotten anyone that didn't say the student that started off low, made consistent progress, and then ended at a consistently high rate? Never. Never. So, okay. So, I think that's like five problems now with traditional (laughs) grading. I'm going to give you another one. Okay. We know, and we're going to talk about this more in a future episode, that the way human beings learn is from making mistakes. Okay. Yeah. What what is it that I always say math actually stands for? Math allows thinking. No, mistakes mistakes allow allow thinking thinking to to happen. happen. See, and I just made one. But so, yeah. So if mistakes are how people learn, how does traditional grading, what does it do with mistakes? Exactly. It continues to punish these early mistakes And really unfairly so, especially if the student is learning from those mistakes, which is how every learning science says we learn. We make mistakes. We grow from those mistakes. That's how we learn. It's still punishing them. And that is, you know, in our last episode, our first episode, when I was talking about how grading was actually undermining a lot of my pedagogical practices and beliefs, because I've always believed this, that mistakes allow thinking to happen, that we grow from our mistakes. If you're not making any mistakes, you're not actually trying hard enough. Right. But the problem with our traditional grading is there's no point to learning from our mistakes because most of the time, once we do a quiz or an exam, you never come back to that content. That content's done. You never have a chance to repair it. So why would you learn from your mistake? Yep. And not only that, but I, I don't know about you, but I had a couple of classes in college's when I was doing my undergrad that I just gave up on because after a single test, my grade was already to the point where I couldn't do better than a C. Yeah. And I was just like, I, I can't deal with that. Well, and that speaks to the psychology of the whole class too, right? What, I mean, what's the very first assignment that most students have to turn in, in any class, anywhere, everywhere? Some sort of syllabus compliance. Right. I, I have two kids that are now in college when they were in high school 
I had to spend all of the first week of class signing every syllabus that came home because they had to turn in the little piece of paper. So you start out your semester with five out of five for turning in your parent's signature on time. So you're at 100 percent. And the rest of the semester, what happens? If you're lucky, you're staying at 100 percent, which I don't know too many people that do. Normally, you're going down. You're going down. And if you're lucky, you don't slip too far. Yeah. So you spend the entire semester attempting not to slip. Very negative psychology, very negative perspective. And it leads to some really kind of nasty, yucky behaviors. Not like not people being nasty, but the behaviors just feel terrible. Well, and it also leads to a conversation that I think any educator, if you have taught for more than five minutes, have had this conversation with a student. You get close to one of these grading periods and what does the student come in and say? How can I get some more points? Exactly. It's nothing about what you've learned. It's all about how do I get some extra credit? How can I get more points to go from this letter grade to the next letter grade? So and then if you tell the student, well, you can't, then they hate you. <laughs> and it's a very uncomfortable position because I would like to be a coach to my students. I'd like to be a mentor. But instead, I feel like a miser. I feel like I have these pocketfuls of points coins and I have to be like, well, one for you, but none for you. And it's no fun. Like, and I can't just like hand them out just willy nilly. Oh, because then I, your class isn't rigorous enough. I, exactly. And I have this hypothesis in my head because remember, I also still believe that my grades actually mean something. Exactly. Right. <laughs> Oh, it makes me sick to my stomach. I want to go back. And if you're listening to this podcast and you ever had me as an instructor before 2016, I apologize. I just didn't know any better. It was frustrating. And I love learning. I mean, that's one of the reasons I'm in academia and I'm an instructor. I love to learn. And even I didn't want to learn in most of my classes because it wasn't rewarded. My curiosity wasn't rewarded. My imagination and there was just so much pressure uh, the points. It was just, and God, the amount of time, again, I'm a mathematician. So I actually enjoyed hand calculating my weighted averages, except when they didn't come out the way I wanted them to. And the amount of times I calculated, okay, I just need to get eight more points on this one thing or eight out of 10 points to bring my GPA. Yeah, it, it's just, it's nasty. I just don't even want to think about it anymore. It's just really gross. So if we've got all these issues with the calculation from beginning of course to when we have to give this multi-level grade, going back to our original thing, does traditional grading meet the purpose that most people say is the in letter grade? Is this actually showing some sort of achievement that a student has made towards progressing towards the goals of that class? And I would say even if it does which I don't grant that it does, I as an instructor couldn't tell you what achievement it was. If a student came back and said, hey, I got to be in your class, what did I learn? I had no record. I could tell you, you got a 90% on the first exam and 80% on the second exam and 85% on the final. But if you asked me, did this calculus student know how to do sequences and series? I have no clue. Yeah, you'd have to go actually go back to your grade book, see which assignments they did well and which ones they didn't go back, find those actual assignments. Oh, that 
topic was on midterm one and a little bit on the final. And yeah, the well, and then let's take another point of it, which I know I've told you, I am teaching in a discipline that when I teach in calculus, they've had 13, 14 years of, of math education coming to me. Mm-hmm. So what if they didn't have a great background? We know we have a lot of under-resourced schools. We know we have a lot of students who don't have support at home. So if they're coming to me and they don't have certain arithmetic skills or certain algebra skills, am I supposed to not let them pass my calculus course because they didn't know their algebra? Well, there's plenty of people who say absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. If they can't do algebra, they shouldn't be passing calculus. But we know who that hits. We know what types of students that that disproportionately affects. And that's going to be students from under-resourced, under-resourced communities and under-resourced schools. So now you're going to layer in some level of equity or desire for equity and diversity. And I didn't feel good as a calculus instructor if they knew the calculus. Why was I grading them on the holes in their background? That felt terrible. But it also felt terrible to let them go on and and to give them a false sense of their own achievement. Because if I pass them out of calculus two and they can't do algebra. Yeah, they're not going to be able to be successful in whatever math class that's following because those algebra skills are so fundamental to anything along the calc line or related to anything about calculus. And even in other disciplines, I mean, we tend to talk a lot from math, but I also happen to be a pretty darn good writer. I have an MBA in marketing, and I spent quite a few years in the advertising industry. An English teacher also grapples with these things. Even though in theory, your literature class might be not be content-wise dependent on your historical nonfiction class or whatever, but at the end of the day, in English or social science or any of these disciplines, you have certain things that you want to make sure students can do as they progress through their educational journey. And they, they struggle with the same things. Yep. So we've really explored kind of these issues with traditional grading and why, A, they've got some definite equitable issues, but more importantly, they don't do the job they're supposed to do. And again, there are some great readings out there that show more of the research and can do this a lot more elegantly than maybe we have. And I encourage you guys to go out there and read some of these. We'll link some of them in our show notes. But this is kind of bringing us to the whole point of this podcast and what we're going to try to do. So from this as a background and this as our base, our next episodes is really going to be exploring, okay, If this doesn't work, if this isn't doing what it's supposed to do, how do we do it different? What is there a different way? Because again, like we were saying earlier, you maybe had a couple of classes with your band. I know I have, you know, a high school, a bachelor's degree, master's degrees. I experienced no classes that weren't graded this way. And I'm not saying all of my classes were bad. I had some great instructors. Right. I want to just shout out to assuming you need a final multi-level grade because there's a lot of ways to get from point A to point B. If you have to give a final multi-level grade, we want a system that measures to the best that it can be measured, 
what students learn. Now, even that much is a little bit up for debate because, you know, are they learning content? Are they learning how to learn? Are they learning how to write? Are they growing? There's lots of different things you can measure and there's lots of things you can define for your class, but whatever that definition is, how are you going to define success in a class and how are you going to measure it and measure it for the purpose of a final multi-level grade? Secondly, how does your system encourage students to do the activities and to demonstrate what it is you're defining as success. We want to use the science of learning that has developed over the last 40 years in our favor instead of trying to fight against it. Exactly. As we wrap this up, Boz, what has changed the most for you? Let's, let's do a little bit of inspiration. So we've made this change. We don't live in this world anymore. What has been your experience with the shift? What do you get out of it? I'll actually go back to the very first time I did it, which I think we mentioned in the last episode. It was not good. It was a disaster. We jumped off on this together. We did the best we could, but we made a ton of mistakes. Painful. But even with these mistakes, at the end of that first semester, the students came to me and talked to me not about how many points can I get extra points? How many more points do I need to get a B? The conversations were, what do I need to show you I've learned about descriptive statistics? What else do I need to show about inferential statistics? It was about the math. It was about the actual course. And the first time that happened completely changed my outlook. And every single person that came to me that semester, those were the conversations we were having. It wasn't Mr. How can I get more points? Can I have some extra credit to do this to get more points? I just need five more points. It became about the math. And that's been the most rewarding thing to me. And that's why even after that first year where we had no kind of lifelines, we had read a few books and we were trying to put this together the best we could, but it was bad. (laughs) And yet I have never even thought about looking back because of those end of semester conversations. Well, and I would say that for me, I'm going to echo what you said. Number one, I get to talk about math. I've never gotten to talk about math with my students. And I'm in math because I like math. Weird that way. I know, we're strange (laughs) that way, but that's the thing. So I get to talk math. The other thing I get to do, which is just amazing to me. So I'm going to tell you one story from before this changeover. Back in the mid-2000s, I had a summer class that I taught at El Camino College here in Los Angeles. We're both based out of Los Angeles. It was an Algebra two class at a community college. So this is definitely a remediation style class. And I had a woman come in the first day of class. I swear to God, she was green around the gills. She was shaking. <laughs> she was nauseous. She was that scared of math. Yep. And I didn't have this tool, but I had other tools I had tools for reducing math anxiety and I had tools to encourage students and she succeeded. And I ran into her a number of years later and she was getting a master's and she said, if it hadn't been for you, I wouldn't be getting a master's degree first in her family to go to college. Okay. Amazing experience. I have one of those, right? Now I get to have those kinds of conversations literally every semester. I get to look at someone who has historically struggled in math or someone who has never been able to get an A. They might be a math major or an engineering major, but they haven't been able to get an A in college. And because there is a clear, transparent path to those A's, if they want them, 
I get to walk alongside them. I'm no longer their antagonist. I'm no longer the pockets full of points. I get to walk with them. I have so many conversations where a student will come to me in week 10 and say, is there any way I can pass this class? And I look at their pattern and I say, oh, you're going to pass. Let's not talk about that. Let's talk Let's about, talk the about you getting an A. <laughs> and again, there definitely are places to say, well, even A's, B's, C's, and D's are problematic. But for today, the environment we live in, I get to say to every student, and I have had for the first time in my career, classes where 100% of the people passed. Yep. And let me tell you, they passed because they know the knowledge. The other thing I get to do, I don't have to ex accept crap algebra anymore. I don't have to. I can go back to my students and say, I know this is a calculus class. You still need to get your algebra right. And that's okay. Yeah, see, and that's been one of the funniest things, a lot of the complaints we've heard, and we'll get much more into the complaints and pushbacks in, in any kind of alternate um, grading system, is about the rigor. We've had this conversation. Both of our rigors in all of our classes is so much higher so now. So much higher. Because we can give this back to our students to have them learn from those mistakes and not just can, we demand it. Other people say we're not rigorous. We don't like the word rigorous for courses. Oh, that's a whole other We're going to say the accuracy of our students' mathematics is what's much higher. So I'm just going to, since we know that otherwise some of our colleagues are going to get over us on the word rigor, we're going to have a whole episode probably on that one. But we're able to demand a higher standard of completion, communication, and accuracy, which is amazing. I just love that. So that's the journey that we're hoping to take you on with further episodes. So please continue to join us as we start diving into how do we do this if we can't do it with traditional grading? How do we do it? What is the way to actually get grades to mean what they're supposed to mean? Please share your thoughts and comments about this episode by commenting on this episode's page on our website, www.thecreatingpod.com. Or you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. If you would like to suggest a future topic for the show, or would like to be considered as a potential guest for the show, please use the Contact Us form on our website. The Grading Podcast is created and produced by Robert Bosley and Sharona Krinsky. The full transcript of this episode is available on our website.